you have your Bibles, I would invite you, if you would, to join me in the book of Romans, near the end of the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 15. We're in this season of Advent, and historically, these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we, we celebrate and we, we anticipate the coming of the baby Jesus Christ into the world. But then, as we said also earlier, we also anticipate the second coming of Jesus Christ. And each Sunday has a theme, and this Sunday, we are looking at this concept of hope. And so in Romans chapter 15, we hear Paul talk about hope. Sometimes I'm asked, what's the most difficult sermons that I have to prepare? And my, my answer is always the same. Sermons like this, seasons like this in Christmas and especially Easter is always so difficult because I can preach Jesus Christ uh, crucified and resurrected and the hope of our salvation from anywhere in Scripture. And when you, when you come to a specific passage of Scripture, it can be really difficult because you're literally stepping into the middle of a conversation. And this morning in Romans chapter 15, we're, we're stepping literally not just into the middle of a conversation, but the end of a conversation. See, the book of Romans is a, 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 the, Paul's presentation of the content of the gospel to this church that he's never met before the church and Christians in Rome. And a theme throughout the book is how God has opened the door and made a way for Gentiles to come into the family of God. And what we see now in Rome is we see Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians all coming together. And as you know, when you pull together a bunch of people from a bunch of different backgrounds with a bunch of different traditions and, and expectations, that's just a recipe for conflict. And so there was some conflict in the Roman church that Paul is attempting to address, especially in these latter few chapters of the book of Romans. And so there, is this, there are these seeds of disunity and disharmony that have are, are been sown into the church, particularly around these traditions. Questions like, what food is acceptable for a, a believer in Jesus Christ to eat? Because the Jews said that there are certain foods that we're not supposed to eat, bringing in the Jewish food laws and traditions. But then also, as we see later in the Corinthian church as well, there's a struggle between whether or not people should eat meat that is sold um, in the markets that had potentially been part of a sacrifice to a foreign god. We also see Paul take, make reference uh, earlier in Romans chapter 14 to the question of what holy days are supposed to be celebrated and, and how are they supposed to celebrate them. And so these issues of what food is and isn't acceptable to eat, what days should and shouldn't be celebrated and how those days should and shouldn't be celebrated are dividing the people of God in Rome. But the deeper division, we can think about how silly that is food and, and holy days and celebrations. We can think that that's silly, but what is happening is the deeper issue is the question of faith. Those who Paul deems as having weaker faith because they question the practice of eating certain foods or questioned ignoring certain holy days are basically being trounced and, and denigrated by people who, who have stronger faith in the sense that they say we can eat what we want because we've been freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they see these questions of food laws and, and holy days as petty issues. But earlier in Romans chapter 15, 
Paul says to those who are strong, he said, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It can be easy as we think through these these issues in the early church that, that they're just silly issues and we can scoff at them for this. But as I said, deeper behind this is the question of faith. And we see petty issues threatening the harmony of the church of Jesus Christ even today. Just recently, uh, the publishers of the New American Standard Bible have released an updated version, the NASB 2020. And I was reading an article, a forum this past week, where there were people who were beginning to just lambaste these translators. They were just attacking them, questioning their salvation, questioning their moral integrity, accusing them of of bowing the knee to to liberal theology, and they were questioning just the the very uh, moral character of these godly men and women who were attempting to be faithful to translate the Word of God. I think we're in the Christmas season, and I've been on the other side of the counter and and experienced Christians who, who use this time as a militant season, because how dare you say happy holidays to me? And they get mad at commercials and, and they get mad at marketers who, who, who put Xmas on things and they talk about how they're taking Christ out of Christmas. And Christians have that debate and that argument about whether or not Santa Claus should be included whatsoever and it becomes this issue of faith. If you are a true Christian, you would never talk about Santa Claus and on and on. But then specifically, hitting home and right now, I'm shocked at how controversial this thing is. Right now. We can question the the science and we can have a conversation about the science, about the effectiveness of whether masks fights COVID-19 or not. But what breaks my heart is I have heard testimony that there are individuals who question the faith and the Christianity of anyone who puts one of these on. Had a conversation just this past week, in which our, not this past week, but in the past couple of weeks, in which our city mayor had someone question his relationship with Jesus Christ because of the mask mandate. That's pathetic. It's heartbreaking that something so petty becomes a symbol of whether or not we have faith in Jesus Christ. And yet that's what's going on in the church. An accusation about one's faith. If you had faith, if you were a really believer, then you wouldn't stay home, you wouldn't wear a mask, you would not what fill in the blank, or you would fill in the blank. And now is a season, and now is a time when we in the church of Jesus Christ need unity more than ever. And what we find in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13, is the source of unity is ultimately focusing not on the things that could divide us, but instead on the one who unites us, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. So look with me, if you will, in Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 8, where Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. 
And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Would you pray with me this morning? Father and God, so much is threatening to tear our unity to pieces. I pray, Holy Spirit, that this morning as we make much of Jesus Christ in these verses, that you would unite our hearts, our hearts in this room and our hearts with brothers and sisters around the world and around our community, that we would be united in the example of Jesus Christ, in the life of Jesus Christ, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that in him we might find our hope. That regardless of the world around us and the hopelessness of the situation that we are experiencing right now, we might be sources of hope to a hopeless world. That we might be help to a helpless world. Father God, we might be sources of joy in a joyless world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. Now, in the verses that we just read, Paul is giving us the foundation, the grounds for the statement, the conclusion, really, that he makes just one verse prior in verse 7, where he issues this command, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection becomes the source of salvation for all people of all times. That's one of the primary things that Paul is arguing throughout the book of Romans, that Jesus is that door, that doorway into a relationship with God and into a reunion and a a restoration. He is the way back to God for all peoples everywhere, not just for the Jews, but for Jews and Gentiles. Every corner of the world, Jesus is the means of our salvation. Jesus is the the mechanism of our restoration of a relationship with God. He becomes the host of this grand family reunion as men and women and children from all ages and all parts of the world and all languages and all races come to him in repentance and in faith and are united through him to the Lord. And he did this not by becoming some powerful ruler of humanity, but instead he did it by being a servant. Paul says right there, I tell you, Christ became a servant. And it's his example of service that fosters unity among the body of Christ. When we follow his example, when we set our eyes on him and we're running after Jesus Christ, we'll inevitably come together. I tell people all the time, and I've said it here before, when you have a common destination, no matter how far apart you are, as you each move towards a common destination, you come closer together. I can be here in Clarksville, Tennessee, and somebody else can be in Los Angeles. But if we set San Antonio, Texas as our destination, the closer we come to San Antonio, the closer we come together. That's a life principle for our marriages, for our families as fathers and mothers and children. And we set Jesus Christ as our goal, as our destination. Then inevitably the things that are wrong in our lives, the struggles that we all have, 
will fix in some senses. We need to focus on them. We don't need to ignore them. But as we're moving towards Jesus Christ, we'll see that a lot of those problems aren't problems at all. But in following Jesus' example, we're unified. And we see that Jesus' example of service unites us first and foremost to serve one another. Because Jesus came as a servant. He came as a servant, Paul says, to the circumcised. That is, to the Jews. We saw Jesus' prioritization of his ministry to the Jews as we were studying Mark over the last several weeks. Remember that encounter when Jesus gets away and that woman, the Syrophoenician woman, comes to him begging that he would cast the demon out of her daughter? And Jesus' response in that moment is a parable in which he says it's not right for the Son of Man to, to focus on the Gentiles when he's come to serve the Jews first. He doesn't say never, he says not now. Jesus came first to the Jews, but not just to the Jews. They were not the end of Jesus' ministry. They weren't the end of Jesus' mission or the goal. Instead, he came to serve the Jews and through the Jews to the Gentiles. Which is you and which is me. Which is human beings to the four corners of the earth, across time and across space. He came to serve for the glory of the Lord and to serve through the Jews to the rest of the world. And I believe that that doesn't end there. As Jesus came to be a servant to the circumcised in order to show God's truthfulness and to confirm his promises to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. We can't be content to sit back and be consumers holding on to the promises of gifts Promises and gifts of God in our lives. Jesus didn't come just for the Jews, but for the Jews and the rest of the world. Through them to those nations and those people that were around them. And in the same way, your salvation and my salvation isn't just for us alone. We might be the primary beneficiaries of Jesus' work in our lives, but Jesus lights the light of salvation inside you and inside me that we might be a light to those that are around us. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that we might be salt, that we might be light, that we might shine the light of God's grace on the lives of those that are around us. Our sin does not merely affect us, but affects those that are around us. And our salvation does not affect us, but it only affects us it affects those that are around us as well. Jesus saved us and calls us out of our isolation and into service of other people around us that we might shine the light of God's grace into the life of others and the world around us that others might be saved too. How selfish and self-centered is it for us to take what it is that God has given to us and then hide it under the bushel? That Jesus commands us not to do. There's a quote from Charles Spurgeon that says, I do not believe that you have truly tasted of the honey of the gospel of Jesus Christ if you can eat it all by yourself. And so our salvation is for us. The Bible tells us that God in saving us has transformed us and in transforming us has given us unique gifts, not for us, but for the body. For the building up of one another. And so we're not only called and equipped to serve the world around us, we're supposed to be serving one another. 
We're supposed to be building up this body, investing in each other's lives, pouring out ourselves for the benefit of someone else, for discipleship and relationship and service. Everyone can contribute to the advancement of the gospel and the ministries of this church. The question is, are you? And will you? If you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which means that you have been born again because you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says that you have a gift given to you by the Spirit that you are then invited to employ in the body of Christ for the advancement of the kingdom of God. If you're not employing that for the benefit of others around you, then you're disobedient. And you're that... that that man that was received a talent from the master who instead of employing it and allowing it to multiply, went and buried it so that he could give it back to God just the way he got it. And God calls him wicked and evil. Jesus came to serve. And in his service, we have that same invitation to serve. And when and where we serve, Roll up our sleeves and step into the trenches of real ministry. That's where we get to see those that are different. See those that are distinct. That we may be at odds with over certain theological issues and many other things. But it's in those trenches when we're serving alongside one another. That bonds are built here with those that are like-minded and among us but then also breaks down barriers that would keep us away from others also. Then serving in the trenches beside one another, shoulder to shoulder, is where true relationships are forged. Lifelong relationships are forged. I shared with you last week that the Church of Jesus Christ, I believe over the next 18 months, but really right here and right now, has a unique opportunity to truly be a light and a help and minister to our communities if we will just prepare ourselves. I can count four suicides in this city in the last two weeks alone. That I, those are just the ones I'm aware of. As people are desperate, as people are struggling, as we're seeing domestic violence go up, as we're seeing depression go up, as we're seeing drug and alcohol abuse go up in this season right now. And the church of Jesus Christ is going to be faced with the, with the, with the question, what do we do next? Do we rally the, the, the troops? Do we rally the wagons and just make sure that we're able to do this in the way that, that least affects and changes things, or are we going to roll up our sleeves and do whatever it takes to take the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people who are actually hurting and be a body of hope and service in the world and when we gather as well? Jesus' example doesn't just call us into service of one another. His example of service also unites us in worship of the Lord. Jesus didn't merely serve for our sake or even for the sake of the world. He served for the grander purpose, which is ultimately to bring glory to God. Paul says it right here, that he says in verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to, conform the, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
In coming and serving, Jesus proved that all of the promises of the Lord are true and that God is faithful to keep all of his promises. God made promises to the patriarchs that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The most important one being from Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, where God came and spoke to Abraham and made this promise to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who curse you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was the anchor promise of God to Abraham who would be the father of the nation of Israel that in Abraham all the nations of the world would be blessed. Not just the nation of Israel but the Gentile nations as well. Paul then goes on in these verses in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 he quotes four Old Testament passages. One from the, two from the law, one from the prophets, and, or I'm sorry, one from the law, one from the prophets, and two from the writings which include the Psalms and the, the, the Old Testament prophets. In every single one of them, the Gentiles are referenced as they are welcomed into the people of God. And in two of those verses, the Gentiles are actually commanded to worship God. Not only does David invite them in, but they are commanded, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And then Isaiah promises that the root of Jesse, which is Jesus Christ, will rise up to rule the Gentiles. And in his rule, in his reign, the Gentiles will find hope. God deserves all of the glory. God deserves all of the honor. In the end, the world does not revolve around us. Our world needs to hear that now more than ever. We're not the center of God's existence. God alone is the center of theology, history, and cosmology. He is the center of all things. Everything revolves around Him. Jesus didn't merely serve through the Jews to the the Gentiles and through them to you and to me, but through us all back to God. That's what the reformers declared when they, when they reformed and they turned away from the Catholic Church. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. It starts with God and it ends with God. We're invited into that just as Christ brought glory to God. We are now invited to give glory to God because he deserves that glory. And the foundation of that glory is Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of God's faithfulness, is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to all people of all times. He is the cornerstone of the foundation of praise that God deserves. All of God's promises flow to him and from him. And so we're invited into God's family, not merely just for our benefit, so that we can experience a utopian existence for all of eternity, but ultimately for God's glory. That God might be magnified. That God might be praised. That our lives and our eternities might shine and reflect the glory of God for all of existence. Jesus isn't just the reason for the season at Christmas or at Easter. He should be the very center of our lives every moment of every day. As we live out our faith 
in his faithfulness to keep all of his promises. Regardless of what happens in our lives, we can believe and we can know that God has kept all of his promises and so he will keep all of his promises. Our lives should be a testimony to the faithfulness of the God that we worship. Not just here on Sunday mornings, but Monday mornings and Tuesday afternoons and Thursday lunches and Fridays at 10 o'clock. When we worship the Lord and invite others to as well, we participate in these commands from Scripture, inviting and calling us to worship God. Jesus' example unites us in worship of God, but His example also unites us in a hope for the future. Because God has proven Himself faithful in the past, we can know that He will be faithful in the future. That's the purpose of Advent. That's the purpose of Christmas and Easter. We don't just look back to remember. We look back to remember so that we can look forward with hope. Hope is an expectation. It's an anticipation of an outcome or an event. But hope is only as useful or as solid as the object that our hope is in. Yesterday I had some hope that Auburn would be able to upset Alabama. You see how good the foundation of my hope was. 42 to 13, when it was all said and done. We put our hope in a lot of different things. We put our, our hope in science, and we talk about whether or not the weather is going to do what it is, and we, we talk about this expectation, this anticipation. But in Scripture, we know that God is the source of hope. And that's what Paul talks about here in, in uh, 15 verse 13. May the God of hope. And Paul here prays that this God of hope will do something for these people. That this God of hope will fill them with joy and with peace. Joy and peace come not only from knowing what God has done, but in also knowing what God is still to do. So that no matter what it is that happens in our lives, no matter what darkness and trial and struggle we may face, we can be sources of joy and peace in the midst of the darkest circumstances. I read a quote this past week that hope is born in the dark places. That's where we come to rely upon God's promises in a way that we have never relied on them before. Another quote, I think it was John Piper said in a sermon that I, I read, that it's, it's the, the seasons of darkness where we ex exercise our hope, but it's those seasons of peace where we should be storing up like squirrels in the fall with nuts all of the promises that we're going to need for the next season of darkness and struggle. And it's passages like this that prove that God has done, that, that proclaim that God has kept all of his promises, that is the cornerstone and the foundation for the hope that we have in the future. That when we're filled with God's joy and his peace, we're also filled with the power of the Holy Spirit for hope in the future. And it becomes this never-ending cycle as, as the God of hope gives us joy and peace and the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which then produces an abundance of hope. And that abundance of hope then creates joy and peace regardless of the circumstances that then flows into more of an abundance of hope. And it just goes on and on and upwards into the glory of God. 
but right smack dab in the middle of all of it. In the middle of the God of hope who gives joy and peace and the Holy Spirit who is abounding in power and the source of our hope, Paul puts this really interesting little phrase. Paul prays that the God of hope will fill us with joy and peace in believing. Or as you believe in Him. Paul said that the gospel is from faith for faith. And I can affirm that the truths of God and His faithfulness, I can affirm those to you all day long, but until you believe this hope, and until you believe in the God who is faithful, who does keep all of His promises and has kept them all in Jesus Christ, this joy and this peace and this hope will be out of grasp, out of reach, but not impossible. The God of hope will fill you with joy and peace in believing in Christ. So my question for you today is, do you believe? And will you believe? If not, why not? God has proven his faithfulness again and again and again throughout Scripture. I can tell you all day long, but the call in the end of it is, will you believe this to be true? Will you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? He's the perfect picture of service and sacrifice for you. And you can know that all day long in your head. You can adhere to all of the logical pieces and components. And you can get it up here and say, yeah, that's true. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus fulfilled all of these Old Testament promises. I get all of that. But there's a point at which you have to believe in your heart and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And trust Him with your eternity. And in doing so, there is the promise that God will fill you with peace and with joy and with power that abounds in faith. Faith to be a source of peace and joy and hope and love in the world. So as we set our eyes on Jesus Christ, We follow his example. We'll be united with one another in service. We'll be united with one another in worshiping the Lord. We'll be united with one another in a hope for the future. As we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in his word. And we live out that faith. In service and in sacrifice for one another. How can you serve someone else this week? How can you live out a worship in a faithful God? How can you not just look forward to Christmas and remembering that Jesus came, but live this life this week, your life this week, in the hope that he's coming again? I invite you, if you would, take a moment, bow your head and close your eyes, and go before the Lord and ask him, Father, where do I need to be united to Christ and his example this week? How can I serve in this church family and in this world? How can I worship you How can I find hope? How can I believe in Jesus Christ today? Take a moment and pray and I'll close us in a moment.